Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host, and in this conversation recorded in June of 2020, I speak with Gail Treverberg. Gail is someone who is on the cutting edge of understanding limits. In fact, her website is Our Finite World, exploring how oil limits affect the economy. She's got a master's in mathematics. She's an actuary. In fact, her Twitter feed is Gail the Actuary. And she's been writing prophetically and incisively for a decade and a half. She wrote for the oil drum back in the day. And here we talk about how understanding limits and what's going on energy-wise can also help us understand some of the violence and things we're seeing around the world now in this coronavirus time. I think you'll find this insightful. You also bring an understanding of economics that is, is very insightful. And so before I go any further, I didn't, I, because some of the people who watch this or who listen to this won't be familiar with your work, if you could just take a few minutes and don't be bashful, help us know what you're well known for, what you're particularly um, um, knowledgeable about, like give us a background so that anybody who doesn't know you can get who you are in this, uh, in this whole movement. Okay, I, you should know that I'm an actuary by background. I have been, worked in the insurance industry for a, lo for a long time. I have been doing things in the insurance field of forecasting and working with uh, you know, things such as medical malpractice and workers' compensation and uh, some kinds of credit insurance and, and various other things. So. In a way, I've been working with the things that economists work with, but I have not been indoctrinated with the economic doctrine of how this is supposed to work. I've more come at it from the point of view of, well, let's look at what's going wrong in practice. Let's figure out what's going wrong. I, in a way, I'm more like a, an engineer than somebody sitting in a Niagara Tower saying, oh, we've put together these nice doctrines that appeal to politicians. I'm more somebody who looks at and says, well, this is the way the system really works. And I've had help from my commenters in trying to figure out how it works. Yes, exactly. If you would say a little bit about your blog, Our Finite World. Okay, Our Finite World, I believe I started it back in uh, 2007. I actually started investigating this back in 2005. I may have started it earlier than 2007, in fact, 2006 maybe. Uh, but I started writing articles about energy and seeing what the problems were way back then. I uh, write articles, now it's about once every three weeks on my blog. Uh, but I also for a while wrote for a group website that was called The Oil Drum. The people there had somewhat different beliefs than I did. They're, I left their website before they went out of business, we'll say. Yeah. Uh, and I came back to my website. You posted one on May 13th titled, Understanding Our Pandemic. Uh, econo uh, understanding Our Pandemic hyphen Economy Predicament. And so I want, you know, normally I would sort of go into more of the personal questions, but because your analysis is, I found so insightful, um, I'd like you to just take a few moments and just describe sort of how you, 
how you see things in terms of how, how we got into this predicament, and then what you see unfolding, say, in the coming uh, months and year or two. Well, the way, <coughs> excuse me, the way I see this is that the world economy has been slowing down for quite a while. In fact, I think 2008 was a major road bump, and it was clear at that point the world economy was slowing. But uh, by the time we got to 2018, China in particular was running into major, major problems. And China was one of the biggest uh, parts of the world economy. It uses more energy than the United States does. So this is extremely important. And the people in China were becoming um, less and less able to purchase uh, new cars or new cell phones uh, and uh, fewer condominiums were being built because of reduced concrete that they were able to uh, create in China. So all of these things were slowing China's economy. Uh, and of course, the recycling stopped or almost stopped uh, January 1st, 2018 because they couldn't make money on it. So this, uh, they had to, these people lost their jobs and this added to their economic problems. So it was China's problems were things that we get, were not terribly aware of, but that has been what's been pushing us towards uh, recession. And when this uh, epidemic came along, you know, there was times back many years ago when we had epidemics that weren't a whole lot different than what we have now. And we just kind of looked the other way and said, well, you know, you folks stay at home. I think it, since it was, I think 1958 or something like that. Uh, then, you know, take, Aspirin then, now we say take acetaminophen or whatever, <laughs> you know, the, the modern equivalent of it is. But, you know, the, uh, this whole uproar with respect to what's happening, uh, it kind of fed into the situation we were in already. China had a very strange reaction when it clamped down so hard and everybody followed suit. And the uh, people in, uh, that were epidemiologists who looked at this, they looked at it and said, oh, this is our great opportunity. You know, we can make a name for ourselves and we can stop this thing. Well, maybe they couldn't stop this thing. But they said, well, just stop the economy for a while. You know, maybe 14 days should be good enough, you know, because by that time it'll stop going around. Well, 14 days comes and goes. Well, that's not long enough. Well, maybe 28 days will be enough. Well, no, that's not quite long enough. Well, maybe three months will be enough. Well, meanwhile, everybody figures out that you, you just can't just stop the economy. This is just absurd. And it doesn't stop the virus to begin with. It's a world problem. Uh, what you end up with is uh, very much low, lower prices for oil and for commodities of many types and many people laid off of work. Yes, exactly. Well, I found the 10, the ten major uh, 
you know, subsections or the 10 main points that you made uh, or commented on in your recent post, I found so helpful. And it's our finite uh, world. But this post that was only published a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, has over 3,000 comments on it. So, you know, I highly recommend Gail's work. But I just want to read the first one is the world economy is reaching limits to growth as described in the book with a similar title. Anything you'd like to say about that? Well, back in 1972, a book was published by a group of researchers at MIT uh, describing some models they had put together to see how long the resources in the world's crust, basically, would last given how fast population was growing and how much we were using, how much our growth in our resources was uh, using. And they, they modeled several different things in terms of how our productivity improved and uh, birth rates and death rates and how much pollution we had and such things. And what the conclusion they came to, they ran several different scenarios, but they had kind of their best guess, which I call the base scenario. And that came to uh, a collapse right about now. Exactly. Uh, what would happen is that the resources would become too depleted and we'd be using so much in just keeping the whole system going that at some point things would tend to do the way they have done in prior civilizations with leading towards what's called collapse. Uh, sometimes central governments will collapse, like the central government of the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Of, of course, uh, the second set I read aloud to Connie and I just burst out laughing. I said, uh, your first two sentences in this are, the world's number one problem today is that the world's population is too large for its resource base. Some people have called this situation overshoot. And you hotlinked to William Catton's book, Overshoot. And I said, oh, I've immediately, I knew I was going to have to record this essay. <laughs> okay. I, I wrote this whole essay in one day. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah. You, I mean, the amazing thing is uh, what I love about your post is you also have great visual images along with them, of course, which can't be captured in an audio version. So I always refer people. I say, hey, if you like this, go to Gail's website and actually look at the charts that she has with so the second point you make was it is far more than population that has overshot limits. And then you have a list of bullet points that I just want to read and then have you comment anything you'd like to. The issue isn't simply that there are too many people relative to resources. The world seems to have, and then you have these bullet points, too many shopping malls and stores, too many businesses of all kinds with many not very profitable for their owners, governments with too extensive programs, which taxpayers really can't afford, too much debt, an unaffordable amount of pension promises, too low interest rates, too many people with low wages or no wages at all, too expensive a healthcare system, and too expensive an education system. So anything you want to share about that? Well, I think what happens is that there's always this push towards more is better without stopping to figure out that more is not necessarily affordable by everybody who's buying these services. So, you know, 
for instance, the consumer price index for an automobile says, oh, the consumer price of an automobile has not gone up much since whatever. I'd have to look at it and see, but for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, of course, what's happened is, well, we put in a better radio and we put in uh, better anti-lock brakes and we put in better air conditioning, or we put in air conditioning to begin with, we put in an electric uh, window opener, we put in, you know, a thousand different bells and whistles. And when you get done with all of this, this car is worth so much more because of all of these bells and whistles we've added. You know, it still only gets you from point A to point B, but now, oh, and it's also energy efficient. And because of that, you know, you need to pay well over $30,000 for a new one. And, you know, people are saying, wow, I'm not making $30,000 a year. How am I going to make it buy a car that costs that much? So uh, you have that happening in the auto industry, but you also have that happening in the uh, medical industry. You have people saying, well, you know, we need to cure people of COVID. Okay, well, we need to have the most expensive uh, vaccine that anybody can think of, and we need to give that to you know everybody in Africa and India. You know, and you stop and think about this, and you go, well, maybe that would work, and maybe it wouldn't. Maybe what we need is a handful of pills that cost you know, 10 or $20, and we send it home with people, and they take it at home, and you don't fill up the hospitals with these people. You know, you, you need cheap solutions, cheap solutions that everybody can use, and they, so they don't have to stay out of work all the time, but they also don't have to uh, worry about the vaccines, which may or may not ever come to happen. Yeah. So uh, the, the last thing that you said in that section is that the world economy needs to shrink back in many ways at once simultaneously to manage within its resource base or its resource limits. It's not clear how much of an economy or multiple smaller economies will be left after this shrinkage occurs. And that's one of the things I've appreciated about you and uh, uh, Kurt Cobb and uh, Ugo Barty and, and you know, John Michael Greer and so many, Richard Heinberg and so many others who are saying basically there are limits that we need to honor as sacred. We cannot violate these, what I call grace limits. And so we need to live within limits. And that's what we've been not doing in, in industrialization. So the third point that you have says the economy is in many ways like the human body. In physics terms, both are dissipative structures. They are both self-organizing systems powered by energy, food for humans, a mixture of energy products, including oil, coal, natural gas, burn biomass, and electricity for the economy. Anything you want to say about that? Well, I think the thing that people lose sight of is how interconnected the economy is, just like the, uh, our body is interconnected. You know, we could say, well, I burned my hand and it's really bothering me. You know, well, let's cut it off and that will solve the problem. Well, no, that's not quite what you could do. You gotta, <laughs> we're just going to have to go with it and see if your body can fix that problem or something. It, it, it's not as simple as we'll just cut it off. So you end up with a problem. Well, well, maybe China really messed up with respect to 
when he COVID go around the world, maybe we should be retaliating against China. Well, if a whole lot of our stuff comes from China, it is sort of like cutting off your foot because, you know, that was what got you into trouble. You, you just can't do that. You just have to go on and say, well, that's the way it went. They messed up. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so number four, you say world governments are in a poor position to fix the current resource and pandemic crisis. Well, the problem with the governments is they depend on tax revenue. And the tax revenue comes partly from the wages of citizens. And uh, in many parts of the world, they also come from taxes on resources that are extracted. For instance, oil that's extracted, but also lithium or uh, coal or uh, copper or almost any kind of a resource. The governments, in, especially in these countries that export these resources, tends to collect a lot of their revenue from these exports. Well, if the price of the exports goes down, then the governments don't get much revenue. And of course, if the uh, workers get laid off because of COVID restrictions, then the tax revenue isn't here. So I know here in Georgia, uh, there have been notices sent out that uh, people are either being asked to work for lesser wages, government employees, or they have multiple days uh, that they're not getting paid for the work they're doing. All right. Yeah. Yep. Well, th again, this is one of the things where I have found um, what's actually happening in the world that in many ways you foresaw and predicted quite some time ago, which is the difference. In fact, if you could say just a little bit about the sort of the expectations, especially in the peak oil community of sort of inflation and rising prices and, um, and, that, and, and falling prices and how that is really the deflationary problem. Say just a little bit about that. Well, I think that the, the problem ultimately goes back to uh, the economists who have put together a rather false model of the way the economy operates. The economists thought that the, that the supply and demand, the big issue was that if there was any scarcity problem, then it would be a situation where the price would go up and of course that would encourage substitution it would encourage the use of uh, more resources that were higher costs to extract and somehow or other the situation worked it all out and uh, by extension from that if you assume that the price would always go up then if you know how much oil is in the ground you could suddenly figure out how much you could get out in the future so the peak oilers came up with this two-part thing. The price is going to go up, and that higher price is going to allow us to get out all of the oil that's, that we can see. You know, as long as we have techniques now to do it, uh, certainly things will be at least as good in the future, maybe even better. So we should be able to get it all out. Well, I looked at it and said, no, you know, and I got looked more into it. 
and it's really an affordability issue. It's an affordability of the finished products that use oil. If you can't afford a car, for example, and you can't afford a vacation in Greece, then you're not going to be using as much oil. And it's the affordability problem that gets you into trouble. And it sort of works backwards because of the network effect. Uh, it's the fact that there's too much, too many people working for too low wages. Yes. And some of these people are maybe in India or China or Africa, but they can't make the cars that they're making parts for, for example. And so they can't afford to buy them. So we can make lots and lots of material goods, but that doesn't mean we really have consumers for them. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, your, your fifth point, you said COVID-19 would have the least impact on the world economy if people could just pay little attention to the pandemic and let it run. And let it run. Of course, even without mitigation attempts, COVID-19 might bring down, down the world economy, given the distressed level of today's economic, of economy and the shutdowns experienced to date. Anything you want to say about that? Well, the way it works, you know, if there's an illness going around and suppose it takes two weeks on average for people to get over this illness, then having people off work for two weeks is a fairly big bump in the road because uh, if they're making widgets, they're going to make two weeks less worth of widgets during a 52-week year. And so it's going to push the economy down by, we'll say, 4%. So, you know, this this is going to be a considerable bump just by itself. Of course, if you only have half the people having symptoms, then maybe it comes out to be an average of one week or down, and that, so it's a 2% downward push. So you end up with a bump in the road one way or the other. But once you start telling people to stay at home for you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, 10 weeks, you know, 15 weeks, then you've got a huge bump in the road and you can't get past it. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing how many people, at least a couple months ago, thought that we could turn off the economy for a few weeks, a month, and then turn it back on and things would be okay. And of course, that's, we've seen that that's absolutely not the case. So your sixth point, you said the virus that caused, and I, I so appreciate the way that you worded this, the virus that causes COVID-19 looks a great deal like a laboratory cross between SARS and HIV, making the likelihood of a quick vaccine low. Well, part of our problem is that we don't have easy ways of making vaccines. Uh, there's influenza viruses, and we've kind of been around and around with them, and we figured out that the influenza vaccine we make one year is not very good for the next year. And in fact, they're not really very good, period. You know, they say, well, it will slightly reduce your chances of getting influenza, and maybe you'll have a lighter case if you have it, but it really doesn't work terribly well. Uh, and when you go back uh, and you look at some of these earlier uh, kind of weird viruses that we've run into, the SARS-1 that they sometimes call it, and the MERS. Uh, we never found uh, vaccines for them. Uh, there's any number of different uh, illnesses out there that we uh, haven't uh, found vaccines for. 
In fact, there's something, what, over 200 viruses that affect humans. And I was reading that there's a little over 20 out of the 200 have vaccines. So we're, it's not like something that's a slam dunk that we automatically get a vaccine immediately. It's like it takes us years very often to get a vaccine. And even then, it may not work. It may have a lot of, uh, it may accidentally cause people to get it worse rather than lighter. Yeah, no, exactly. So number seven, you say we are probably kidding ourselves about ever being able to contain the virus that causes COVID-19. I think uh, the early story that came out was, oh, certainly we can contain uh, COVID-19. You know, it was just stopping the economy for a couple of weeks, that should solve it. And in fact, I understand that Australia and New Zealand have sort of followed that path even now and said, well, okay, we'll just stamp it out. You know, we'll keep everybody in their apartments indefinitely. We'll stop all air traffic in and we'll stop everything. Of course, that might stop all tourism. You know, I mean, that's kind of a big chunk of the economy. And if we are already having problems with our trade, we're probably going to be even worse off with our trade once that happens. Uh, the dollar of those countries may fall further uh, relative to U.S. dollar, and so they may have more problems. But you know, people look at it and say, "Well, I don't have to worry about it anymore," and these vacationers won't have to worry about it. But of course, the vacationers who come maybe carrying COVID too. You, we just don't have very good tests to tell who has it. And there are an awfully lot of people without symptoms who seem to be able to pass it on to others. Not exactly. Number eight, if we look at deaths per million by country, it's difficult to see that lockdowns are very helpful in reducing the spread of the disease. Masks seem to be more beneficial. Yes, uh, if you look at the deaths by country, what you find is that the deaths in the Asian countries are surprisingly low uh, compared to deaths in Europe, which tend to be higher than in the U.S. And then uh, you know, the U.S. deaths, which are someplace on the low side relative to the European deaths. So, um, it's a really strange situation with the, the big difference in the deaths. You know, one of the differences of the Asians is they do tend to wear more masks. Uh, there's probably other things too. I know one of the things I ran into since I wrote that article is the fact that um, apparently some influenza vaccines may make other uh, flus worse rather than better. I remember seeing that. And it may be that having influenza vaccine makes you more prone to having bad reactions from uh, COVID. And if you look at the distribution of where they use the COVID, the vaccine for flus most, it's Europe who's ahead of the United States and China doesn't use it at all. So that may be protective of the Chinese people. And I don't know if Japan uses it very much either. So, you know, there may be things like that. 
It may also be just the fact that Chinese and Japanese people are so much more slender yeah. uh, compared to some of the others. But there's a lot of different effects. Uh, the masks are part of them. Yeah, that's one of the things that Connie noted and mentioned to me the other day is that oftentimes it's reported that a particular population um, is particularly susceptible without also reporting that there's a high rate of uh, obesity or diabetes or whatever in that population. So number nine, you say a person wonders whether Dr. Fauci and members of the World Health Organization may be influenced by the wishes of vaccine and big pharmaceutical companies. Right. The, you know, there's many ways to, as they say, skin a cat, but, you know, in terms of what the world economy can really afford, it really has to be a very inexpensive type of solution. We need to have something that people can mostly stay at home and use, not have to go to hospitals, uh, be able to get over this quickly. You know, it's not the kind of thing we can keep this virus around for years and years until they get around to having a, a vaccine that they can uh, force everybody in the world to, to take and that will somehow or other magically fix the situation. What we really need is, you know, okay, you people take vitamin C and vitamin D and you get more exercise and you know if you do come down with it you need you know a, a cheap solution i think they talked about maybe ivermectin and a tricycline or something like that but you need an inexpensive solution that you can mostly take at home so that you don't fill up the hospitals with all of these patients and so these patients can get back to work quickly yeah yeah, I, I purchased before this became really big, just because I was aligned with Connie's COVID legacy pledge. Even though I'm only 61, I also didn't want to go to the hospital if possible. So I ordered one of those little oxygen generators. I think it cost me 250 bucks. But that way, if I need oxygen, I could you know possibly do that and stay at home. So number 10, you say one way that the, this is the last point that you make in this essay. One way the combination of A, the activity of the virus, and B, our responses to the virus may play out is as a slow motion controlled demolition of the world's economy. Say more about that. Yes, well, what happens is that you kind of have a first round of layoffs during the time that uh, the economy was closed down, the two or three months that they closed down. And, and that kind of, it started in China and then it kind of moved to Europe and the US and now it's moving to South America. It's kind of going around the world. So this is kind of a slow motion because each of these are contributors to supply lines. But then, as I was mentioning before, all these laid off people can't pay taxes. So the governments are saying, well, come September, come July 1st, we have to cut back on what we're paying our workers or we have to lay off some workers. So there's all kinds of uh, layoffs in the second round of workers. There's also some layoffs because when people do come back to work after the two or three months, they discover that there really isn't enough demand for whatever it is they're making. For instance, the restaurants, while they're trying to open up, they really can't hire all the waiters and waitresses back and they, uh, the gyms can't really hire all of the uh, 
staff they had back because they don't have as many subscribers and, and so forth and so on. So it, it's not until you start figuring this out that some of these uh, what look like temporary things get to be permanent. And the fact that they can't buy means that, you know, maybe it used to be a two-income family, now it's a one-income family that's trying to get along on a whole lot less money. Well, Gail, I, I want to shift now back to some of the questions that I've been asking other guests in this post-Doom conversation series. Of course, what I'm meaning by post-Doom uh, are, you know, so many people think that there's two camps, denial or doom and gloom. And what I was trying to say is, no, there are a lot of major people who've been thinking long and deep about this stuff, um, who have moved through whatever grief and despair and anger or whatever depression that they've needed to move through to come to that place of what Paul Traferka calls finding the gift, that place on the other side of mere acceptance to inspired local action in making a difference in any ways that you can. I call it love and action. I, I like love and action better than activism because activism is so, more, so often interpreted as simply trying to save the system from the consequences of its own stupidity over the course of yeah. decades and centuries. Um, and so I'm curious, how, does, uh, how do you structure in language? Like, how do you speak of our declining or deteriorating or overshoot times? Um, and does the word, uh, you know, what do you think of when you hear, hear post-doom? Well, I guess the way I think of the situation is that we all know, well, we never know how long we have on this earth. And it probably won't be as long as we thought it was going to be before but it, it, you know, it, it may very well be shorter, but you know, it emphasizes the need to enjoy what we have right now and to appreciate the fact that you know, we're living at a time which is really the peak of the, the highest point that there has been in terms of goods and services that are available. You know, we, most of us live in houses that are warm when we want them to be warm and cool, when they, we want them to be cool, and we have cars to ride around in, and, and at the same time, we can enjoy the birds that are chirping and all of the uh, scenery that's around us. So we have many things to be thankful for. So I think that's, you know, the first thing is that it encourages us to recognize what we really have. And yeah. in terms of going forward, I think that uh, one of the big things I kind of try to emphasize is that families can kind of help each other maybe uh, to the extent that, you know, if they're older, they may have children and even grandchildren, whatever. Also, keeping people together that way is important. But, uh, you know, trying to stay on good terms with others, uh, probably keeping, making friends with neighbors as well. Uh, fits in there too. So I think that's important. I'm so glad that you mentioned all that, Gail, because that's what I've been saying. I've been doing Zoom. Normally I go travel around, Connie and I, for 19 years and speaking in churches and colleges and various secular and religious uh, organizations, mostly churches, sort of on the moderate to liberal Christian and Unitarian churches and right. others as well. And of course now I've shifted to mostly doing Zoom homilies and sermons and, and evening programs. And I'm always encouraging people, especially now in this coronavirus era, 
to you know, repair any relationships that you have where it used to be close and loving and kind and it's, you know, something happened, like apologize, you know, get back on as best terms as you can with your family and close friends, old friends, especially. There's nothing like people who have known you for many, many years or decades. You know, be on as good of terms with those folks as you can. Get to know your neighbors, even if it's just on the phone or whatever. I mean, we're not meeting face-to-face, -face or, or at least we're keeping six-foot distance, most of us. But there's, there's things that you can do that would be generous to your friends, generous to your family members, generous to your neighbors that would build a goodwill. Because in difficult times, this is, you know, we're going to need each other. We're going to need community. And that's what helps us stay present to what an awesome gift it is to just be alive to just notice the beauty and, the, and the, 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 the miraculous amazingness of to be conscious, even in these difficult, painful, challenging times, but what a gift it is to just simply be alive. And um, so I appreciate you uh, mentioning that. And I think the, the third thing would be that in looking all of, at all of these things, everything works together in such a miraculous way, you know, you have to believe, or I have to believe, that there's some sort of a higher power that's behind how it's all working together. You know, it, it wasn't that everything just fell apart all at once, at least not yet. You know, things have kind of followed a pattern, uh, but you know, the fact that there are humans on Earth is sort of had required many coincidences but there have been coincidences at every point of the way. And now as we're reaching the collapse stage, there's also many coincidences at every point of the stage. And it, it's, um, it, it's all of these things that work together that lead to me, that, me to believe that there's really some kind of a plan, even if we don't understand it. I don't think it necessarily goes with any one religion, however. It's not that, you know, at some point in time, people who happen to have this particular religious belief will suddenly be carried away and it will, they will live happily ever after and nobody else will. You know, that's just not part of my belief system, but I guess I come from the liberal end of the religious spectrum as well share about how your story of how you grew up and how you began to understand resource limits and how you began to understand uh, uh, climate and, you know, whatever it else, but, but just a little bit, you know, about, and if there were any particular books you read or mentors that you had or uh, turning points. And, and even if you want to share anything about your, how that was emotionally, were any, any times that were particularly difficult for you emotionally in that process that led you to where you are now. Uh, good question. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I grew up quite a few years ago, and uh, and I became a math major in a Lutheran college, and I graduated from St. Olaf, and I went on to get a master's degree in mathematics. And I asked, you know, well, what can I act? What can you do with a master's degree in mathematics? And they said, well, you can become an actuary. <laughs> Anyhow. So I became an actuary. I had to take a series of exams, so that lasted quite a long time too. Yeah. But I, I think the thing that I could always do well was to kind of get an overview of what was going on even back then. 
And so I saw what was happening in insurance companies. I saw how inflation was affecting insurance companies. I saw uh, different things that other people didn't see too well. And I, so I ended up getting promoted to quite high levels very early on. And I ended up working at quite high levels with insurance companies. And I managed to see the 1974-75 crisis right up close uh, when, thing, when oil prices were high and when the insurance companies were doing very poorly. You know, so I knew that, the, it, that high oil prices would mess up financial institutions. I mean, this was something that was very clear to me. And then over the years, whenever somebody would write a book that was on, you know, uh, oh, something about saving for retirement, and they talk about, oh, and the money you put away will compound at 8% or 10% or whatever the ridiculous amount was. And I look at it and I say, oh, I can retire it. You know, 45, this is just absurd. I can, this is, well, anyhow, you know, and I'd look at it and i kind of shake my head and i think, no, this, it, it just doesn't work that way. And I was making forecasts within the insurance industry and, and I worked on long tail lines of business uh, where we're talking about a worker getting injured when they're 17 and if they go to a mental institution, the insurance company's on the hook as long as they're alive and they're getting great health care. So they can live to be 90 or 95 and the insurance company is still on the hook for taking care of that person. Uh, or with medical malpractice, in some places you can still sue the doctor. Uh, if somebody is injured, say, by the wrong level of oxygen supply for a preemie or something like that. So they're blind or whatever the problem is. They can sue the doctor when the, uh, until the child is age 21 and the statute of limitations actually starts to run then. So they can sue till age 23. Well, of course, the malpractice insurance policy that was in effect 23 years earlier was written at much lower limits and no one had looked into this. You know, so I got involved in all of these discussions of you know, how much inflation is there, how does this all work together, and I could see what was being put into these projections. <laughs> it was sort of like, uh, well, you know, do we assume that we're gonna have 7% forever? No, this just doesn't work. And, and do we assume all these things? Well, not in a finite world. And so then when 2005 came along and I started reading about uh, the crisis that there was going on at that time and the discussion about oil limits, uh, you know, I read that with interest. And by that time I was getting sick of working for insurance consulting, but, and I could take early retirement in 2007. So, and I, continued to write, I wrote articles like uh, I would write, we had a, an advertising publication that the company I worked for uh, put out to clients, potential clients, and they came to me, as they usually did, and said, can you write us an article about medical malpractice that might 
introduced our clients. And I said, well, actually I've written quite a few articles on medical malpractice free. How about if I write you an article on oil limits and, and talk about that this time? You know, so I started, I wrote an article about that and I got it approved by all of the powers that be, but I could see that you know, this is going to start running into problems. In fact, I wrote one for an actuarial magazine as well. And I'm going, well, let's see, I can't really say that the pension plans aren't going to be able to make the interest rates they're claiming. You know, if I'm the consulting firm I'm working for is doing consulting for pension plans at the same time that I'm writing this, even if I'm not an actuary working on pension plans. So maybe it would be a better topic that I worked on if I were at home doing this on my own. I'll just take early retirement. The house is paid for. You know, it's not a big deal if I work on this while my, you know, my husband continued to work and the house, like I said, the house is paid for. So and we didn't have necessarily all that high expectations of having the fanciest car in town and fanciest this and that. So uh, I continued to do things that way. Uh, and then I hadn't really expected when I did this that it would be much more than a, a little bit of a hobby. And then uh, the, well, there were different things that came along. I think there was some sort of a contest uh, that was done about writing about oil limits. And so I submitted one of my blog articles or a couple of them, and then I came out way at the top, you know? And so, and then the oil drum saw some of my articles and they wanted me to, could they write them over again? Or could they copy them over? So I did that. Well, then when I went, then the oil drum asked if I could contribute on a regular basis to them. And so I started writing directly for them because uh, they used two different versions of HTML or there were enough different that you had to make some changes between the two. So I started writing my articles in the oil drum uh, at their website, the group website, mm -hmm. instead of my website. But the oil drum people tended to be the people who came very much from the peak oil perspective, the high prices and it will run out perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the workers on the oil drum were, all of us were volunteers. It wasn't like we were getting paid. Right. And the other people were either professors or graduate students uh, in working at some, institution and so they didn't they had a full-time job in some sense mm -hmm. that they needed to get back to and so they really didn't have the time for what they needed to do so at some point which was not too much after i got started writing for them they said well can you become an editor here and I said, well, no, <laughs> I, 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 came, I decided I wanted to investigate this problem, so I'm writing articles. I didn't really want to get into administration. And so, uh, anyhow, so 
a couple of months after I said no, then the person who was handling the editing at that time said, well, I'm going away for a week. Do you suppose you could just handle what comes in during this next week and handle what needs to be done, you know, get things up and, and take care of things while I'm gone? And I said, well, okay, I'll handle it for you while you're gone. Well, then this person kind of said, well, you know, you did such a good job. I really don't want to come back. You just keep on doing this. Well, of course, then I quickly found myself corresponding with Dennis Meadows, who was one of the authors of Limits to Growth, and with other people who were well-known, or I would, sometimes I would write to commenters who had made a particularly insightful comment, and I'd ask them if they wanted to write an article to elaborate on something, you know, so I'd be soliciting articles, and then if they wrote something, I'd have to fix them up to make them good enough to publish, you know, so I got involved with all kinds of different things, but, you know, there were a couple of problems with this. One of them was that I didn't really come with the same perspective as these other people who were coming from the peak oil perspective. And another one was, well, we don't like Abigail having so much power. You know, she just doesn't think right to begin with. She's got too much power, you know. And I said, well, okay, well, you know, so we agreed that the thing I do is I'd go back to my website and I would write the, my articles on my website and they would, there would be a group of, I forget what it was, six editors who would have to agree to publish something. And if they all agreed, or maybe it was five or the six agreed, whatever it was, mm -hmm. then it could be published. And so, I went back and I started and I wrote on my website for a while and and they copied over what they liked and if they didn't like it they didn't copy it over and you know I was kind of upset when this happened originally and then actually the people who were copying my blog really preferred it because now they had all my articles over at one place and they could just come over to my articles and there was no need uh, to go over to the oil drum. Uh, so, and then of course they went out of business because the peak oil story became less and less relevant as the situation kept going on and, and the story I had told was right. Oh, and, and what had happened too in all of this was that um, I had forecast the 2008 uh, financial crisis. And so um, I know Charlie Hall had uh, had read that and he invited me to come and talk to his biophysical economics group. So I went up there and I spoke there on how I foresaw this uh, 2008 crash. And then, you know, there were various other people. I think Joe Tainer was up there at that one, but then I got hooked up with some of the people over in uh, Italy who wanted Joe Tater and Charlie Hall and myself to come over there for a week while they had a series of different things that we gave over at a conference over there. Mm -hmm. So I got involved, you know, and 
whatever, this long distance travel and eating out with the same group of people for a week at a time. Anyhow, uh, so it was kind of an interesting experience as I was going along because I kept running into all these people and I hadn't expected this ever to turn into anything. It was just always, you know, these different people that I would meet and, and uh, you know, and see. And of course, I've met all of these other people that you mentioned earlier uh, at ASPO meetings. Mm -hmm. I uh, also went to some of the, uh, let's see, there's also, which is it, the oil group. Uh, I had to think of the name, but anyhow, I was invited to come and tour some of the oil and gas facilities. And of course, there weren't any of the, the other oil drum staff who had time available to do it. And so I went and I reported on what I saw and I wrote oil articles on the oil drum about these places. So mm -hmm. I went up to the oil sands of Canada and I went down to the Gulf of Mexico and I went quite a few different places. I actually went down to uh, Ecuador with Chevron. And at the same time, I also participated on phone calls with or whatever they wanted to do with, you know, whichever renewable site wanted to pitch their latest thing that was going to save the world. So I got involved in a lot of different things that I would have otherwise. So anyhow, I, I did see a, a lot of different things. And over the years, I have, uh, had a lot of different groups that have wanted me to be involved, uh, some of them on a long-term basis, some of them on a shorter-term basis. So I find myself on discussion groups with a lot of different groups. My mailbox tends to stay quite full. Well, this is one of the things that I've so appreciated about you is that, I mean, Connie and I have been living this weird lifestyle now for 18 years. So we have lots of friends and colleagues just all over the map in terms of, you know, worldview and all, but most of them get resource depletion and overshoot yeah. and, you know, climate and things like that. And, uh, and yes, I was quite aware of your having, you know, collegial relationships, friendships with people, just lots of different folk who really find value in your work. Um, and invite you to speak or to write or to contribute in some way. Um, well, Gail, in just sort of winding this conversation down, anything that you'd like to say about how do you stay, I don't know if I want to use the word hopeful, but just inspired. How do you, how do you like, are there any practices? Are there any exercises? Are there any tools in your toolbox that allow you to look clear-eyed at some of the most scary stuff there is, and yet ultimately be of service to the world, to be of service to the future, to have a good life, to have healthy relationships. Anything that you can share that somebody listening to this or watching this would find uh, of use possibly for them to apply it to their own life? Well, <laughs> I'm not sure if there's anything. I, I don't try to push my story on my family members, you know, 24 <laughs> seven. I, I think this would, be just too much for them, you know. I, I, you just have to kind of turn it off. Uh, it's uh, 
it's the kind of thing I talk to people about. I have my website and I talk to them about, you know, a little bit about it, but I don't try to push it too much. Yeah. Uh, and it's the kind of thing, well, we never know what tomorrow will bring. And I try to be hopeful and thankful every day for everything I see. So, I mean, I go walking, I try to get my 10,000 steps a day in. And I try, when I do this, I, you know, I'm looking at, you know, how beautiful the grass is today and I'm hearing the birds chirping and I, you know, looking at all of the wonderful things we have. And in fact, the fact that the trucks are running is a good sign and not a bad sign because without the trucks, we don't get food in our stores. And so, you know, you may think they're bad, but I think they're very necessary. So I guess I give thankful, give thanks for things that some people would not give thanks for. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I'm curious, who are the people you read or who you find most nourishing? Like who are the authors or where are the places that you go that you um, on a daily or weekly or monthly basis, but that you found particularly helpful in terms of either intellectually or emotionally or spiritually? Well, <laughs> I guess I find myself so deluged with the commenters and such things that what I tend to do a lot of is, you know, I follow a lot of the links through and sometimes then I go and look further at them. I don't make a whole lot of practice of following other, what other people are saying. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these people, you know, say Dennis Manos and Charles Hall and such things, they're in their late 70s. You know, they're not at a point where you're going to be seeing huge amounts of new things coming out of them. Yeah. And, you know, I have seen a lot of things out of John Michael Greer, and he has some interesting insights, but it's not that I'm going to be following them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's, um, there are different ones that are okay, but it, it's not that I'm getting too much out of it. What I go to, my go-to is always the raw data and, you know, making little graphs. I like to make little COVID graphs. I like to make a little oil uh, graphs. I go back and it's the raw data I go back to, not to other authors. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.